where nobody knows your name is not filmed in front of a live studio audience. We're back after that laser fiasco last week, and we're talking about Feeble Attraction, which aired on the 7th of December, 1989. I'm discussing it with Barry. Hello, James. Hello, Barry. Welcome back. Thank you. This episode was directed by Andy Ackerman and written by Dan O'Shannon and Tom Anderson. Another sort of punny title, if you like. Yes. Uh, After the Glenn Close film, was it? Lethal Attraction. Or Fatal Attraction. That's the one. Yeah. <laughs> Lethal Attraction is probably some Jean-Claude Van Damme romance, isn't it? Yeah. No, Fatal Attraction, I think, is the one with the with the bunny boiling. Yeah, that's right. I don't think I've ever seen it. I just know that scene. It's, mm. a, it's a well-known scene. But yeah, she's, basically, she's a bit stalkery, isn't she? The, the Glenn Close in that film. And mm. as a result, there's a stalkery character in this one. You know, let's see what they did there. Yeah, yeah. Let's get into it then, James. Good old cold open. Mm. I've got a fun fact about this cold open. As I said, uh, this episode is 7th of December, 1989, right? And they are talking about who they think is the greatest American hero. And uh, numerous suggestions come up. Uh, Davy Crockett uh, is criticized for his absenteeism from Congress. Babe Ruth, whose sin was gluttony. Apparently, but I don't think the people at the bar would care about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, J. Edgar Hoover, suggested by Cliff, obviously. Frazier criticizes uh, J. Edgar Hoover for... Right-wing megalomaniac. Yeah, exactly. And who threatened and intimidated presidents. And he says, in the 1990s, there are no more heroes. Which is interesting, because this episode was released in 1989. Oh, so it's set in the future. What a strange choice. Yeah. Uh, mm. And then enters Sam with a, a, a quartet of women. Yes, as, as the new American hero. It's, uh, it's interesting, isn't it? What, what constitutes hero and how, when you look back in Britain as well, at what we hold up as heroes, um, they're inevitably flawed. And oh, yeah, Britain's got Britain has not had a good history. I'll tell mm, you that. Yeah, what would be a modern hero, American or otherwise? It'd be tempting to pick someone like I think "hero" is probably a strong word, but certainly in terms of likability, someone like Tom Hanks uh, yes, seems to be able to do very, no wrong. He's very likable. Is Tom Hanks Keanu Reeves? Mm-hmm. Uh, Although I wouldn't, you know, I like Keanu Reeves, but I wouldn't suggest that he's the greatest actor in the world. No, but it's, it's again, it's a question of hero, heroism. Mm. So Robin Williams, for example, bless his soul, he is well reputed to be a generous, heartfelt guy. You know, he, he went out of his way to hire people who uh, weren't getting much work, you know, so often it would, he, you know, put in programs to upskill unemployed people in um, woodwork and things so that they would get jobs on film sets, uh, you know, to build film sets. Uh, Things like this, you know, he's very, very charitable. But in the same vein that they criticise Babe Ruth for gluttony, if they're looking at it that day, the same criticism would come of Robert Williams uh, for previous addictions he's had. I don't criticise him for that at Mm. all. Because addictions is linked to his mental health as well. Exactly. Which he Uh, was... 
he's been very publicly held up as a a victim and bastion of yeah those things yeah but i i think he was a a hero to, to a lot of people in a lot of ways mm. was what was robin williams doesn't answer the question but but i think uh i think he was a very admirable man mm. okay well that that's our cold open sam i'm i'm not sure sam coming in with a four women in ski paraphernalia really counts as hero but they all chant his name he's their hero in the bar in the main episode we have we have two kind of plots rebecca's got a shiny new desk mm-hmm. which was promised actually way back in season eight episode two because robin poured water over rebecca's desk uh, to demonstrate his development plans it was a kind of farcical moment but as such she was like oh i'll get you a new desk there it is and uh, meanwhile uh, Woody is talking about the coldest day in Boston and weather is something which, you know, is always small talk and something that I don't think many people care about, uh, but it fills the time. He tries to get people interested because the date in which Cheers was, uh, this episode took place is the second coldest day. So he talks, tries to talk about the first ever coldest day, which, fun fact, was actually... Uh, February 9th, 1934, where it went down to minus 28 degrees Celsius. Sweet lordy. Well cold is how the how the weathermen would put it. Uh, Norm is not interested in either of these plots. They both bore him when asking about them. He They give him the most uh, simple of details and his attention hops between the two. <sighs> He decides that he doesn't want any of it. Decides to just walk away. (laughs) (laughs) I'd do the same. This episode builds up a nice beginning uh, of suggesting everyone's boring. But really, it's all to carry one sort of joke for Woody, who seems to be obsessed by this coldest day, or or in this case, the second coldest day. (laughs) Yeah, it's notable. I don't care to know the details. Hmm. <laughs> There's a Michael McIntyre routine. He's a, he's a comedian here in the UK. They have this phrase, uh, you know, weather, weather reports. Um, I think across the globe they have this phrase where they go, it's the something day, it's the superlative day since records began. You know, it's the hottest day, it's the wettest day, it's the coldest day since records began. And Michael McIntyre has, a, has this routine where he goes, does that mean at some point people will be like, everyone, we need to keep track of the weather. Today is the day that records begin. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Britain is very temperate, isn't it? It's um, mid-range and everything. It's fairly, in almost every aspect of life, it's mid-range. <laughs> That's we, we, true. We don't get... We're pathetic. Uh, yeah. <laughs> There's no disasters. Um, we, we have huge news stories if there's... Uh, a tornado that can shift a few tiles off someone's roof. We've had a couple of floods in in our day. Yeah, but they're 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 not the they're kind not tsunamis, of tsunamis. They're just floods. Yeah, they're just sort of things that ruin people's living rooms. Yeah, um, and not to talk down the distress that that might cause someone, but it's it's certainly not. You know, we get some world-ending floods in in other areas. Yeah. That, you know, that destroy lives and cause deaths and other things. And it's very rare that. The UK has anything along those lines. We just kind of, yeah, it's all very level ground. 
Yeah, for for example, we don't have air conditioning in the UK. Don't need it mm-hmm. most of the time. <laughs> and uh, as of the past few months, we haven't had our heating on either. Uh, you know, so thank goodness. Yeah, uh, so it's like it's like nope. The temperature is fine, exactly how it is. <laughs> yeah, it's a, what keep calm, carry on. Just <laughs> no, we'll, we'll grin and bear it. Is it Dunkirk spirit? Is that what it's called? Uh, Blitz. Blitz spirit, yeah. Yeah, uh, which is strange because we are also one of the quickest nations to complain about anything. Yeah. We despite complain having, about it, but just do it. <laughs> yeah, but despite having such a narrow variation in <laughs> temperatures and, and weather conditions, yeah. we're so quick to complain that it's slightly too hot or too cold or too S- wet. Or Stephen Mangan, who's a, who's a comedian and actor, he said, the weather in the UK changes so often which is one, the reason that it does form such a large part of small talk. But also, when people are talking about the weather, they're not really talking about the weather. They're talking about their emotional state at the time. Mm. And it's their outlook on what the weather currently is and what it will be, which reflects their general outlook. And I was like, he's got a point. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. The phrase... I hope it rains tomorrow. The garden needs it. <laughs> you know, just... Yeah. Well, there's talk of, um, with climate change, uh, the UK being so temperate is a very attractive proposition from other countries where they do have much bigger extremes and obviously will become much harder to live in those places. Well, I think Boston has a fair amount of extremes. New York has a lot of extremes. Mm. Um, because it's a heat trap or a cold trap. Just whatever the weather is. It traps it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Like the weather is a mouse and New York is but a sumptuous piece of cheese. (laughs) A lovely example. A lovely example. Back to the episode. Um, uh, We're bored of um, coldest days and Rebecca's desk from Robin. Focus now switches to Norm writing a letter of recommendation for his secretary, uh, Doris, who he's going to have to let go. He's not like he's lost work. It's that he doesn't want to work. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Poor Doris. Yeah. Doris is is fun. Doris is the victim of uh, Norm's slovenliness, really. Norm tries to write her a recommendation a letter of recommendation on a bar mat, a bar napkin. Um, and he's persuaded to do a better job by those around the bar. I think it's fair. I think it's understandable that you might not necessarily know the correct words. You know, it's it's could be a difficult thing to write when, one, you have to let someone go, but two, recommend them. You know, there's it's a, it's two separate emotional notes you need to hit there. Sammy, uh, excuse me, do you know how to spell courteous? Uh, yeah, no, I'm just as it sounds. Then check it with Fraser. <laughs> Damn, I gotta write this letter of recommendation for Doris. Remember my secretary, Doris? Oh, yeah, what, she, uh, she quit? Yeah, I have to let her go. Business hasn't been going too good since I decided to stop working. <laughs> anyway, she's on her way over here. I gotta finish this puppy. Well, what do you got so far, then? I got, uh, all right, to whom it may concern, Doris. And then there's this big middle chunk that I'm still working on. Yeah. And then I close with, and I hope the Red Sox win the pennant, Norm Peterson. <laughs> Which is, that's how I end all my correspondences. You no, know, actually, Norm, you have to use upbeat adjectives like, um, oh, hardworking, loyal, professional. Good, 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 good. Yeah, how about prompt? 
Cliff, you heard it. I might make a suggestion, too. Uh, why don't you write it on stationery instead of a uh, cocktail napkin? <laughs> but get proper stationery, man. Just <laughs> yeah. up your game. Yeah. So Doris arrives unexpectedly uh, wearing a yellow Mac looking very much like a... Was it Jemima Puddleduck? Is that the... Frasier goes, my God, he's going to fire the Morton Salt Girl. <laughs> <laughs> Which which is lost on me totally. It's it's a it's a little girl who is a mascot for salt. Uh, poor Doris is quite the low confident meek character. Yeah, it's very strange how the initial interaction between Norm and her goes. In that he's firing her, but she seems to find every element of things he does as a declaration of love or interest. Yeah. She finds him quite alluring, old Normie P. Quite enchanting. Part of it is something which has been brought up often by other people. There's a, I suppose, a perception of power, which apparently some people find attractive, the perception of power there. But I do think it odd that if someone is firing you or making you redundant, I think it odd to then go, I'm not redundant, you need me, just not financially. Mm. But but emotionally, yeah, it's an odd thing. It you know we do go into Doris's psyche, not in a kind of you know Lynchian way, but we do get a better understanding of it uh, later in the episode. Yeah, yeah. So she's she thinks that his letter of recommendation is a declaration of uh, undying love. <laughs> yeah, mutual love. It's obvious that she's become quite she's latched onto Norm. Because Norm has provided her a job, stability, something to do, a purpose. And without it, uh, it seems her fixation turns to Norm. There's one bit which is bizarre, but quite amusing. Where she goes, Mr. Peterson, can I sing Seasons in the Sun <laughs> at you? <laughs> Not with you, at you. Yeah. Before I go, Mr. Peterson, could I, could I sing Seasons in the Sun to you? <laughs> Go, Doris. We had joy, we had fun. No, I mean, go, go, Doris. Come on, get out of here, go. Have you ever had a... Um... Have I ever been serenaded by a stalker? Is that hmm. what you... Yeah, I was going to ask that. Uh, no, not by a stalker. This will sound weird, but people who know me will go, yeah, that sounds like the, exactly the type of interaction which James would have. I have had a couple of middle-aged men come up to me and, and sing at me uh, mm. as I'm going about. And it's mostly because I've been wearing a T-shirt with a band from the 70s on it, right? And they go, yeah, that band, that's cool, man. Start singing a song at me by, by said band. And I join in. And uh, it's quite wholesome. Um, but when I went to uh, Boston with a friend of mine, uh, this per- I was wearing a T-shirt of The Who. I was wearing the Kids Are All Right album cover. This guy, he, he, you know, he was in a proper band. He was a good singer. Started singing the Who at me. I I joined in, and uh, this person I went. She was she was panicking, Barry. She, <laughs> she, after this guy went, she went. I found that very uncomfortable, and I went. Oh, I loved it. I had a great time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's it's a really nice interaction to have with someone. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's happened a couple of times where, where middle-aged men just come up and start singing at me. I must, you know, have that kind of face. <laughs> you, whatever it is, James, bottle it. Bottle, bottle it and sell it. But bottle it, <laughs> distill it. 
Yeah, that will be the um, the female equivalent of links. Yeah, um, just middle aged men. It, that's that'll be on the thing. Just uh, attracting middle aged men. Yeah, exactly. Just a shame they're not my type, really. <laughs> <laughs> Always nice to be sung at, though. Yeah, it is. I like being. Uh, I like. <laughs> I like the attention. <laughs> <laughs> Back in the bar. After she has, Doris has tried to sing Seasons in the Sun to Norm. Woody is pestering customers uh, about his story about the coldest day. Interesting fact about the coldest day in Boston. It didn't start out that way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he, he's slightly obsessed. Due to some um, miraculous coincidence, which we'll put down to the writers, um, <laughs> the, the radio... Uh, that they're playing on the bar uh, has a competition and the question for the competition is what was the date of the coldest day in Boston? Mm-hmm. Um, and the whole bar persuades Woody to enter, ring up, or rather Carla rings on his behalf and enter the competition. Uh, I love the exchange between Woody and the radio host where he goes, you don't really want to know. You're just teasing me like everyone else. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Mr. Boyd, what was the coldest day in Boston's history? Well, you don't really care. You're just like all the rest. What do you tell him? All right, all right, all right. The coldest day in Boston's history is January 12, 1981. Mr. Boyd, you won our grand prize. Yeah. Right. Winds were westerly at 20 miles an hour. You'll be staying. You know, interestingly days. enough, the, the, the coldest day in Boston's history did not start out that way. Home of the world famous Molly Molly Burger. Barometric pressure was hovering. Hey, weatherman, uh, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> not till I'm finished. <laughs> He'll be right down to pick up his prize. And he wins a uh, trip to Hawaii, which is is never really realised in this episode. Um, we, we get a little extra snippet later on. Uh, you've not been to Hawaii. Uh, I know that in a few American sitcoms, because it's one of their states, but it's, you know, not a mainland state, whenever they're going on a, on a trip somewhere, Hawaii seems to be the exotic uh, locale. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 the Mallorca uh, <laughs> to Britain, isn't it? Yeah, the, America's Benidorm. Yeah. <laughs> Which, if there's any Hawaii uh, listeners, uh, we apologise sincerely for that comparison. Yeah. I'd like to go to Hawaii because it seems nice um, mm. and culturally, you know, it's, there's obviously a lot uh, going on there which we don't have in the UK. Yeah. Um, their most famous actress, uh, Emma Stone. <laughs> I was like, what? Um, uh, Jason Momoa's Hawaiian descent, isn't he? Mm, yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, Emma Stone was in the... She played someone of Hawaiian descent, oh, didn't she, in, in Aloha. In, oh, yeah. Wasn't she half Hawaiian, half Asian? Oh, uh, which Emma was, Stone, the ginger. <laughs> yeah, which was a catastrophic... Peter Casting. She'd be better playing a Scottish person. We'd buy it, you know. <laughs> yeah. But I would say from a British perspective, people have been playing, as I'm sure they have in many countries, but people are playing British people badly for years. I mean, decades and decades we've been... Oh, yeah. Dick you know, Van Dyke is the go-to example. Yeah. Uh, Mary um, Poppins. <laughs> but the um, accents that we hear um, are just terrible in a lot of... Um, big blockbuster films when you need a bad guy they're invariably russian or british or a british person with a russian accent i it's always got to me not because i'm british 
bit because I'm always annoyed how the smartest person is the villain and they always lose to someone who can punch or shoot better than them. I don't think it's necessarily to do with uh, intelligence in terms of why Britain are always the villain. You know, mm-hmm. I, I think it's it's nothing to do with how smart they are. I think it comes back to, you know, America wanted to get away from Britain, didn't they? Back in the 1700s. They fought, they fought to get away from us. So it makes sense that their villains are British. You know? mm. What you say about accents is interesting because in the UK, for such a small island, we have a wide mm. range of accents. Um, so, so much so that I might be wrong with this, but there are large areas of America where you'd be able to say perhaps they're from the Midwest or they're from the South, but you wouldn't be able to necessarily identify the state. I might be wrong. Listeners can correct me. You know, some states have, have very identifiable accents, you know, Massachusetts, for, you know, particularly Boston. But, you know, things like Midwest, you know, it's more generic. Whereas in the UK, you can almost pin it down to specific cities. This is a two-way thing. Yeah. I think we as Brits really don't get the sheer size of the USA. Yes. Um, and, and And conversely, I don't think Americans appreciate just how small we are really and and especially in terms of how quickly language and um accents and culture can change just by going two hour drive and being wales yeah. and and yeah. you know it suddenly be amongst people who don't even speak in english i get into the valleys in wales and you know people could be speaking welsh yeah. um which is insane really yeah it's very true so we're we're tiny, diverse, and have boring weather. Come visit. <laughs> <laughs> that's the yeah. That's our, the new uh, travel board. <laughs> Speaking of travel, Woody Woody does win this trip to Hawaii, and uh, you know, off he goes. You know? mm. um, Robin has sent Rebecca a fax claiming there is a surprise in the desk, but he wants there, he wants to be there when Rebecca uh, sees it. The hint for the surprise is ring. Which is a bad choice of words, Robin. Just up. Yeah. come on, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think cup of tea would be better. Rebecca, of course, thinks it's a it's a wedding ring. So you know, she goes, "Ah, oh, wedding ring. Ooh, uh, I'll have to, I'll have to have at the desk." <laughs> you know. Yeah. Uh, so, so the hints come when she's asking Carla for a screwdriver and then uh, more brutally a, a crowbar. Yes. We do get a resolution to this at the end, but we'll we'll return to uh, Doris, who is following Norm everywhere. Yeah, I, I say everywhere. The joke is that Norm only exists in two places, and that's the bar <laughs> and the, the parking meter outside. Is it a good time to mention the cast? I would certainly like to know who Doris is. Uh, Cynthia Stevenson is Doris. She previously appeared in the Two Faces of Norm as as Norm's secretary, and she was. Very good in that episode as well. Michael Holden as Joe, again, another uh, returning cast member. Uh, John Pappas as Phil, which is a great name. Um, <laughs> yours, not Phil, <laughs> John Pappas. Well, uh, uh, does he does he steal pizza? Oh, Papa, I see Papa John's pizza. Rather than mm. deliver it, he's the other way around. He steals it. Yeah, yeah. Whoa. <laughs> he also appeared in The Killing of a Chinese Bookie. The Last Resort, TJ Hooker, The Tortellis, Police Story, The Watch Commander, 
tremors, hardball, wings, bob, almost perfect, days of our lives, and many more. Uh, Peter Schreiner is Pete, and Philip Pullman is uncredited as another Phil. Another Phil. <laughs> oh, that's that's disheartening, isn't it? <laughs> I think I think Philip Pullman shows up because he gets to spend the the week with his daughter, which is nice. Oh. I think that's the only reason he's there. That's sweet. Yeah. Well, both his daughters, actually, because Heidi is on the writing staff. But as you said, Doris keeps waiting around for and following Norm. Norm confides in Fraser, basically, because he's like, I don't know how to shake this girl. Sounded like, I don't know, Sly in the family stone there. (laughs) (laughs) And Fraser's tired of giving away free psychiatric advice. But Mm. he does explain what motivates Doris's actions. Uh, yes, and and it's as you'd expect. She's lost her purpose. She's low on self-esteem, and she's latching on because she doesn't think she's worth anything more than a loser. <laughs> he says, a, a very generic. Uh, he says, "I'm not referring just to you. I mean, the, your average loser." Well, clinically speaking, she'd go for anything that could lumber up to her under its own power. <laughs> Okay, now how do I get rid of her? Well, try building up her Uh self-confidence. If she feels better about herself, she'd be less inclined to degrade herself by going for the likes of you. (laughs) I mean no offense. I mean, when I say the likes of you, I don't mean you personally. Just any unappealing, go-nowhere loser. (laughs) So, why should I take offense? (laughs) Good man. Which Norm happily accepts. Yeah, he's, he's, he's fine with it. He knows his place. Norm goes to have a word with Doris. He tells her that it wasn't me who just wrote that note. You know, don't take it as a reflection of any way I feel. Because the other guys helped. Cliff wrote the word prompt. And then she goes, oh. Cliff? Cliffy? Cliff. Ooh. Who's this the... This hot hunk of junk? Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Never heard that phrase about Cliff before. <laughs> no, but no one's ever been in love with Cliff before. and this is yeah. obviously the, uh, the the thought that's going through her mind. Yeah, and man, the, in, man in uniform. Hmm? Yeah. Ooh, you, you ever watched the Good Place? Uh, no, I, I I started it, never never got too far into it. Season two is where it kicks off. Season mm. one is all is all set up. It's 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 all right. Season one, you know, there's some farcical moments which are entertaining, but the whole of season one exists purely to set up the more intriguing events of season two. Mm. And that's all I'll say. Okay. But Kristen Bell's character in The Good Place has a thing for men in postal uniform. Ah. So much so that at one point her love interest sends her a calendar of, you know, uh, of him. It's essentially a nude calendar, but in one, in one of the months, he's not nude. He's just wearing a postal uniform. <laughs> well, it depends on the uniform, James. Yes, it does. Yeah. Yeah. Ooh, plumbers. Ooh. <laughs> yeah. That radiation hazmat suit is really getting me going. <laughs> I once answered, uh, you don't need to know why, I once answered a door wearing a hazmat suit. Um, uh, guy delivered pizza to me, which I think answers why. Uh, I'm painting a real dark picture. Last year, I was like, yeah, I've been in how to navigate lasers. This week, yeah, I've been in a hazmat suit. Th- doesn't matter why. 
Yeah. James, this is proper Breaking Bad over here. <laughs> I did have to wear hazmat suits um, fairly often in my undergraduate because it was engineering and we made semiconductors and other nanofabrication stuff, mm. which obviously you have to wear hazmat suits for. So that should give some context. Some, but given that you're ordering <laughs> pizza to your own home, uh, it's limited. It's not quite similar, but I arrived home once in a bin bag and that was it. That's all I had was a bin bag. <laughs> when my dad answered the door, I was, I was about 22 at the time. <laughs> uh, my dad answered the door and he just let me in. At no point did he acknowledge the bin bag <laughs> and he's never asked since. So, so contrary to your story where I was kind of keen to know what had happened with the hazmat, uh, my dad is uh, obviously the opposite to me and he's happy to let things just slide. I, I had the opposite interaction where um, I was watching TV or something and my dad went, James! And I went, what? And he went, <laughs> and it's funny because we still don't have an explanation. <laughs> but he went, James! And I went, what? And he went, did you fill my shoes with birdseed? <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't, and to this day we don't know why. Why his shoes were filled with birdseed? That's right. Well, <laughs> I, 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 I have a friend who uh, became vegetarian, and as a result of this, was talking about it a lot. Not not in a a way that became irritating, but it certainly became his thing for a while. And when we went climbing, uh, at one point he took off his climbing shoes because it was uncomfortable. And a single lentil rolled out. <laughs> Ooh, save that for later. <laughs> anyway, we've digressed again. Uh, much like how we veered off topic and, and travelled to, to other conversational pieces, Woody travelled to uh, Hawaii. He has since returned. He's dressed up in Hawaiian garb. And he had to stand outside a radio station on the second coldest day of the year as they took pictures of him to promote it so obviously he's he's chilly and blue isn't he he is his uh the ukulele he's holding on to he has to prize out of his own frozen hand you'll get this ukulele out of my cold dead <laughs> but as this is going on cliff gets word that doris is attracted to him norman fraser have to warn him off because uh he thinks doris is a live one you know so you've got two meek low self-esteem people, because I think Cliff does have low self-esteem, mm. actually, who are attracted to each other out of convenience more than <laughs> genuine affection. Yes. Uh, and and Cliff obviously is sees this as an opportunity to get with someone, which is obviously a rare opportunity for him. Norm is accusing him of taking advantage. I, I think that's a fair point. I think the only reason he wants to be with Doris is because he got wind that she's attracted to him. So he's an opportunist and a bit of a scoundrel. And it, it actually, this this episode does paint Norm in quite a nice light. Yeah. Because he's very protective and very nice to Doris, even at yeah. her most irritating or most stalky. Yeah. Um, he's always looking for the best for her. Yeah, it's just that it's not it's unrequited is what the, what mm. the dilemma is. Uh, but he doesn't he doesn't dislike her. He just doesn't want to lead her on in any way and wants to ensure that it is unrequited. Mm. You know? There is a, a line earlier where he says to her, I'm not interested in you. I'm married and I'm not interested in her either. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The episode goes on and uh, 
some guy, this is John Pappas, I believe, uh, comes in with a safety deposit box with an authentication paper in it. And Rebecca's like, ooh, ring. But this is after she's taken a chainsaw to, to your desk there. Yeah, yeah. So the desk turns out to be quite the valuable item. Quite a historical piece. Very expensive sawdust you got there. Yeah, many, many zeros are in the price of this thing, or the valuation. At least three zeros. Yeah, um, I think three is enough for the bar staff to get excited. What would you say is many? I'd say five. F- five is the minimum amount for many, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. yeah. So, so the very valuable desk. We knew this was going to happen. We knew it was coming. But it is, it is dealt with quite nicely. Sam goes to tell Rebecca, opens the office door, and it just gets a face full of sawdust, as we hear it. Just hear Yeah, nicely done. Well, yeah, you know, it's a, a real Michael Winslow guy from Police Academy. <laughs> you are, Michael. You're, you're wasted here. <laughs> At this point, Norm and Cliff are arguing because Norm tells Cliff not to take advantage of Doris's desperation. Cliff is like, hey, uh, Norm, you know, don't worry about it, man. That was... <laughs> You know, Cliftopher Walken is who that was. (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) And they have an argument and Doris comes in and sees that they're arguing over her. Which suddenly raises her self-esteem and she takes the opportunity to tell everyone that she's uh, too good for them. Except Norm. She still can't get over the Norm thing. I love how she goes to every man in the bar and goes, I'm too good for you. I can do better than you. Yeah. You're you're awful. (laughs) (laughs) So the solution from Norm's point of view, is to hire her back. And we have the perfect circular episode. The story circle, yeah. Norm just decides that he'll just pay for her. And there's an, there's an interesting line at the end where he says that, you know, he's happy. this is no problem. Uh, he had to buy a house for his wife to keep her happy. <laughs> and it's like, you'd really pay her just to keep you away from you? And, yep. <laughs> <laughs> so we have a resolution. Back to ground zero. What's that sound? It's it's trivia time. Oh, all right, Cliff. No, she's not here. I'll take your post. <laughs> Off you go. I'll get I'll get the hose on you, son. Lovely uniform, though, Cliff. That, yeah, whoa, that uniform is quite fetching. <laughs> but as usual, before we open our letters, we have to give a shout out to our norms on Patreon. So this goes out to Treb Curry. If you want that special norm treatment, then check out our Patreon page for that and so much more. So who did the desk? used to belong to someone bernard shore oh i thought you'd know the first name arthur george george you wrote man and superman didn't he Mm. which sam thinks is is uh the superman comic with the mole people how do i remember this and not the name george (laughs) (laughs) what topic of conversation wins the boston borathon oh so we have uh the coldest day we have the desk and oh i'll tell you there's a surprise entry in the green corner in the green corner in that there's a blue corner and a red corner you know the third corner oh okay i thought green. i thought green was a clue um, <laughs> is it no i don't know a cliff offering to show norm where the flanagan's dog almost bit him oh okay yeah <laughs> which which i like because it's just cliff going look look at this body part the same isn't it (laughs) (laughs) when given the line uh, i think by woody to norm when he arrives at the bar is jack frost nipping at your nose uh, what is norm's response 
Joe Beer nipping at my liver. That's the one. Yeah, classic. I like it. What does Woody claim is the coldest day in Boston history? Now, I mentioned what the actual coldest day was, and it wasn't this. Uh, but what does he claim is the coldest day in Boston history? January the 12th, 1981. Oh, yeah, it's well played. And I will uh, challenge you, James, to tell me what weather feature does he describe about that day? The, the wind? He does describe the wind. Uh, is there, it's not a zephyr, is it? There was a uh, westerly zephyr at 20. And do you know what zephyr is? Uh, I don't. A gentle breeze, a soft, gentle breeze. A zephyr. Mm. Yeah, Z-E-P-H-Y-R. It's a word I know, but I didn't know it meant that. Yeah. Oh, I'm full of useless words. <laughs> ne- never watching the weather does a weatherman go, there's going to be a zephyr. <laughs> <laughs> Who does Cliff compare himself to as a postal carrier or compare postal carriers to when he's talking to Doris trying to impress her? It's not a fellow postal worker. Nope. He, he compares postal workers are like... It would be some kind of soldier or another another piece of work which they've got. You're floundering, James. You're floundering. I am floundering. I, I don't know, Barry. Uh, Indiana Jones. He describes them as the Indiana oh. Jones of the civil service. Oh. Well, there's a vague similarity in that Indiana Jones sees artifacts and he wants to get them to a specific destination but that's it mm. and there, he's got a, he's got a satchel i suppose yeah there, there should, really should be because i might imagine indiana jones is a he's an antiques he's an he's a, a archaeologist archaeologist sorry yeah now i would imagine there's archaeologists out there saying archaeology is really hard yeah. uh, and requires a lot of work and a lot of patience and a lot of thought um and yet, he's got none of that. <laughs> no. And yet all his films are him chasing Nazis around and blowing things up. Uh, yeah. Maybe the next Indiana Jones film should be him painstakingly brushing dirt off the uh, off a small wall uh, somewhere. Yeah, well, I know an archaeologist and she openly said how nonsensical uh, the, the indie films are. Fun, mm. but but just incorrect um (laughs) (laughs) though i did watch a film recently which had some uh correct representation of archaeology you know kind of folds back into what we were talking about with uh, accents and british history the lost king i watched which is a true story about Mm. a woman who found the remains of uh king richard the third yeah third yeah Uh, because nobody knew where he his his you know, remains were, and she found them. Um, Under a car park in Leicester. Yeah. uh, It's quite a nice film. Uh, I recommend it. Very nice. Thank you, James. That's the end of the episode. What a lovely episode it was. I think poor old Doris obviously is still uh, an individual without direction, but she's got her purpose back, as as meagre as that purpose might seem. She is back in the servitude of norm. I wasn't expecting the phrase servitude, um, <laughs> but you weren't expecting the phrase Zephyr. So, you know. Or hazmat. Uh, I'll tell you what, if, uh, if you like the letter Z, this is the episode for you. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a good episode. Uh, what would our house special be? Well, what, what do we have going on here? We have something chilly, perhaps. 
Oh, clever, clever, mm-hmm. clever. Um, can we have a something with ice in it, like a mojito or... Well, you know, it's a very weathery episode. And uh, Woody talked about when Boston was quite cool, but when was Boston cooler? See what I did there? Very yeah. good, very good. Yeah, yeah that's, a, it's a, I, that's a cocktail. Uh, and quite a nice one, it sounds. You know, it's got rum, so it's got that Hawaiian influence, perhaps. Uh, what do you think, Barry? Should we give it a go? I would love to share a Boston cooler with you, James, alongside our main course of boiled rabbit. Yes, I was wondering where you were going. <laughs> <laughs> Lovely stuff. Thank you. And uh, yeah, catch you again next week. 